session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolokli, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can follow me on Facebook uh, or Instagram or like my page on Facebook, follow me on Twitter or Instagram uh, to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The show's up, uploaded then each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And this book based on uh, how much in the public eye we saw people talking about race and racism, and of course still do, not that it's a new issue, but it got renewed and reignited interest. These uh, books related to race and racism, such as How to Be an Anti-Racist and others, had been selling out, and so uh, it took me a while to get my hands on that book, but I'm so happy that I did and looking forward to finishing it, got started on it, and to share it with you on Monday's show next week. And last week I talked a bit about the psychology of racism or some aspects of it and wanted to continue that discussion uh, based on some of what I've already read in that book by Abram X. Kendi, um, looking at some of the whys we might think in certain ways and the deficiencies in our thinking. So unfortunately, you know, it's very easy to say, let's all love one another, let's all be nice to each other, and we uh, want to make everyone feel good. And of course, we do want to do that. But unfortunately, if we look a little bit deeper, we see that some of what is at the roots of racism uh, and other kinds of discrimination or prejudice and uh, prejudgments that people have about different groups and the ways they treat them is that we think different groups of people are different, or some people hold on to these beliefs as, as a truth, not just a thought or an opinion, but they believe in a truth, for example, when we're talking about race, that certain races are better or superior to others. And this is why you might hear people talk about white supremacy or white superiority, and sometimes you might hear that phrase thrown out and think it's just being thrown out as a a catch-all phrase or just to make a statement. I've heard the same thing happen for some people when they people say, oh, this is part of the patriarchy. And it's just sometimes can feel like they're throwing it out there and it might not mean much. But this is very important, just like the patriarchy, and there's a lot of truth and validity there. When we look at racism in the United States, the tenet of white supremacy is a big part that underlies when we talk about systemic or systematic racism or institutional racism or what permeates the country, a big factor is this mindset. And so unfortunately, many people have this mindset that certain races are superior to others, that there are these big differences. And so no matter what you do, 
you're going to end up with these differences. It's not about differences in treatment and environments and experiences. It's treatments, differences in their DNA and just baseline natural inclinations. And most of science doesn't show us any sign of this or doesn't make this true, but people believe it. And actually, unfortunately, science, because scientists had these white supremacy beliefs and the superiority of whites was something that was taken as a given and as assumption that was true, even science was affected and influenced by uh, these mindsets. And so you saw in science lots of experiments, theories, um, what was looked at as science, trying to prove this superiority or looking for it or thinking it was being proven. A great book on this topic is Superior by Angela Saini. She also wrote a book in a similar vein called Inferior about science looking at the differences between men and women and trying to show that uh, men were superior to women and science that quote-unquote supported that, but it was clearly biased science. Um, so that's an interesting point. Sometimes people think, well, if it's science, it's unbiased. The scientific method is an unbiased method or an unbiased ideal, but it doesn't mean that when scientists who are human beings are doing the science, it's going to be unbiased because those scientists have biases. Even what we choose to study, we sometimes don't realize is affected by biases and how we measure, how we analyze, and then of course, how we interpret our data is gonna be heavily influenced by biases. And even another note, the scientific method itself it strives towards objectivity and to be unbiased, but it doesn't mean it is. For example, if we look at medical research, they were doing research until they realized and they thought it was okay and they realized, wait, there's things like the placebo effect or there's things like expectancy effects and we need a control group and we need a double blind study and we need this and that. So even what we thought of as this perfect scientific method had to get updated and improved as we realized its shortcomings. And I'm sure even still the way we do science at some point uh, will recognize their shortcomings there as well. So it's something to be aware of that sometimes we look to science as a religion. I'm absolutely in favor of, um, of course, the, the advent of science and investing money in science and research, uh, but it's recognizing that it can't be something that's always true. And I also say that in light of what we're seeing now, where unfortunately many of the experts related to health and things like the coronavirus are being discounted and completely dismissed when um, they are the people we can listen to. Again, it's not perfect, but it doesn't mean it's not it's the best we have. Uh, the analogy I use is if you were on a plane and let's say the pilot got a heart attack and someone said, who else can fly the plane? And there was someone that had some years of flight experience as a pilot, you would want them flying the plane. Is it perfect? Is there any chance nothing bad happens? Of course not, but you go with the best of what you got. So science shouldn't be taken as some ultimate truth. It's something that is working towards improvement and trying to uh, get a better understanding of a truth, but it does not have some kind of static hold on absolute truth. But nonetheless, uh, when we go back to looking at science, trying to prove these things, that for example, the superiority of certain races, we see how strongly entrenched those ideas were and they continue to be. And so people still think if certain groups of people 
have different outcomes from other groups of people, it's because they are somehow worse. It's not about things like racism and different experiences, different opportunities and circumstances. And if we look at a country like the United States, we see that African-Americans still don't have an equal opportunity or equal chance and things are not fair. But many people think, no, they are. And it's just because of differences in who we are at the core that makes a difference. And this is unfortunate because these beliefs tend to be very strongly held and deeply ingrained which is why the work of racism, overcoming racism in the United States and around the world is gonna be a long journey, but I am hopeful about it. But it is a long one because these things are so deeply embedded in our culture, in our society, in our systems, and in ourselves, in people. It's not just something on the surface that can be easily changed. And that's why it will take time. But again, I am hopeful also because as new generations come and if we have let's say a less racist society they'll be less affected by that or they'll take that in less because there won't be as much of it and this could continue and hopefully get to a place where it does eliminate of course we don't want to wait generations we want to try to make change now because people are suffering now people are oppressed now there isn't time to wait uh actually in hearing myself i can hear what Martin Luther King said in his letter from a Birmingham jail that uh, the moderate white who's kind of telling the black to be patient, that someday it'll be your day for change and progress. Uh, it's unfair for us to say that and unjust for us to tell people that are suffering that they should wait for things to be better for them. So I don't want to make that type of a judgment, but I do want to point to the fact that what we're dealing with is a very serious and deeply ingrained issue which would take time. And we want to look at those, those issues and factors. Uh, as I mentioned on Monday night's show, I think it's so important to look at the different facets of what's going on. A big one to me is always going to be the economic standpoint of things, because until we make big changes in how we invest money uh, and funds and resources, we won't bring about equality until we have more equal distribution of resources in the sense that everyone gets an equal chance and equal education, we, we won't be able to overcome the systemic issues of what's going on. While at the same time, for that to even happen, we need to change the hearts and minds of men and women in this country. So it's definitely both at the same time and both reinforce each other as well. So this underlying assumption that some groups are better than others, unfortunately has a very old history and it's not just history because it's still in the present. And we see it in different ways. Of course, in the United States, we'll talk about racism between whites and blacks, but as an Iranian and even not being in Iran, I've heard and experienced and, and uh, understand even with my very limited exposure to aspects of the Persian culture, different types of race and racism within the culture, uh, sometimes not maybe even different races, but different groups of people that we look at in different ways, which is unfortunate. And so you see it is very clearly something that exists really around the world in different ways. This idea that people are better just by their uh, background or some kind of heritage. And I'm going to talk more about this issue of heritage and background because it's not that it has no meaning, but I think we definitely give it too much meaning and significance. And I think that's 
a big problem. So there's this assumption that we have that people are better and worse than others just by being born a certain way. And it feels very clear because we treat them as worse. And then this is the very sad thing is when people get treated worse, of course, they have worse outcomes. But then for those people that feel like there's this big difference to them, it seems like it's just confirming that. So if you beat people up and then they have a hard time walking and you say, look how weak they are. Well, yeah, they're, they're walking poorly because of what you've done to them, not because they were inherently weaker. And even when we look at different groups of people, sometimes we think these things are so clear, but really um, to define even race is a very difficult thing to do. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that has a big impact, even if it really isn't totally real. So it's a socially constructed concept, meaning we've made it significant and made it so important. But what it even is, we don't know clearly. There's no clear way to say, I know this is this race and that race. And we might think, well, no, it's something very real and important because of, let's say, what we're noticing in the world. But it's funny how we can make that important or skin color so important, but we don't make, let's say, eye color important. It could be different. You can have blue eye, brown eye, green eyes, whatever uh, different ranges of human eye color there is. But no one seems to make that an issue of, oh, you know, the brown eyed people and the blue eyed people. And there's that famous uh, incident and really kind of a study where a school teacher trying to teach her kids about racism created this dynamic between the blue-eyed and the brown-eyed kids, turning them into groups and creating even hate and dislike between the groups um, and making them feel so different from one another, something arbitrary. And so we see that and say, oh, that's so interesting that something so arbitrary could be uh, come so significant to these kids. And maybe we think it's because they're kids and they're childish that they could be tricked into that. But then we look at what we're doing as uh, a global society and the way we treat race, which could be equally as arbitrary, uh, or the way we look at race or try to define race, and people are dying and having um, different types of horrible experiences because of that arbitrary thing too. So rather than looking at that and thinking, look at these childish little kids, so they got tricked by this teacher. No, we're, we're doing that every day much worse than anything they did. And so we shouldn't look to them and think how cute and small and think uh, that's just because they don't get it, but really recognize, oh, we are being that stupid and dumb and immoral uh, and arbitrarily punishing and hurting certain people because of these things as well. So um, related to that, when we try to describe different groups, to you who feels like an outsider to a certain group, let's say you move to a new country, everyone at first will seem the same to you. But once you're there for a while, or before you get used to it, you'll see that they have different groups that you might not even be able to recognize. And it might seem silly to you. Everyone looks kind of the same. Again, even that has value judgments beside it, behind it. But to them, they seem they feel like there's differences. And, and then unfortunately, in a way, once you get to know them better, you might notice those quote unquote racial or group differences. Uh, and then you will likely be able to tell that difference as well. But so we see that people will make distinctions that can seem very real and salient, but it's all a matter of perspective. There isn't something necessarily real behind it. So race is a socially constructed concept, but it has significance, just like money is a socially constructed concept. But of course, it has 
lots of significance in this world, uh, unfortunately, in the ways that we use it and abuse it and abuse people using that. We see that there is this uh, socially constructed thing. We give it value. If everyone all of a sudden didn't care about money, it would lose all of its value. Um, but because I know you value it, you know I value it, it has huge value, it has these huge impacts. Similarly, race is not some real thing, but we've made it so real and important um, that it has felt or feels very real to this day. So the next segment, I'm going to talk a bit more about ideas related to heritage and who I am and ways that there could be some good there, but it also can open up some bad and nasty aspects of ourselves or ways that we treat other people. So let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. In the first segment, I was talking about some aspects in psychology related to things like race and racism and how we look at ourselves and look at others and the ways that often we make these arbitrary distinctions that feel very real. But we know that real feelings of us and them, things that feel very real, can be so arbitrary. Even for example, they've done some studies where they'll try to divide people into teams and in front of the participants they'll flip a coin to put people in the two groups. So let's say they flip a coin. If you get heads, you go to this side. Next person comes, if they're heads or tails, depends, that'll determine which team they're, they're on. Uh, and what they see is then when they have that in-group feeling, even though such an arbitrary coin flipping type of a exercise to put them in two different groups, now they start to show some in-group and out-group biases that they favor people in their groups, for example, or they'll want to give them things or want to punish people in the other group. And so, of course, it's not something meaningful or shouldn't have really an impact in how we behave, but we can see how so quickly this feeling of us and them in and out, uh, treat well or treat poorly and hurt can be created. And so, of course, when we have issues that are a part of society or of history behind them and people make them feel very significant and they're told to be very significant, of course it's going to have a big impact and it's going to make it feel so real. If I see them as an other, if I see them as so bad, of course it has to be real. That can't just be something I make up. But of course, absolutely, we can make up these things. I can make up a group of people that doesn't even exist and start to tell you horrible things about them. There's this group called the whatevers, and the whatevers are this, and they're evil, and they do that, and they do this, and they're the worst people, and they kill their own children. And now already of this group that doesn't even exist, you'll have this horrible feeling that these are bad, bad human beings, or maybe even not even human, they're so bad, even though they're not real. So we get so affected by what we hear and experience about people and what we think of as groups, that of course it's gonna have a huge impact on how we think of them and it could start to feel very real about them at the core and not just about opinions and ideas and beliefs that we've been taught by others and by society. But I mentioned in the last segment I wanted to talk about things like heritage and it's a, I think it's a delicate topic because there can be something nice in understanding your heritage and your background and knowing things about yourself 
and what we might call ancestors. But of course, even ancestors depends on how far you go back. If you really want to go all the way back, really all our ancestors came from Africa. So it's about we're making distinctions in time of how far we want to go back when we talk about these things. But it can be nice to understand that or about your culture. But the way I think we have to be careful is understanding it is different than trying to make it better than others and that's unfortunately what i see happen it's not that people just say for example oh our persian culture has this and this and that's beautiful and you know what other cultures can be beautiful you see people saying oh we have these great poets and you know the cyrus cylinder means we were this and that so we are better than other people that's different than this is what i have in my culture other people can have that and again even the way we think of how back far back our cultures go or our ancestors go determines how separate or together we are so there's a lot of arbitrariness there as well so that's the problem i have is that if you think because i am persian iranian i'm somehow better than someone else that's a problem if you say oh i'm iranian and hear some things about my culture and my uh, background, but let me understand other things about other people as well, That that's okay to me. The way I liken this, and I think it's an interesting perspective, is if you have a child and you have a baby, when you look at your baby, you love your baby so much. And that baby to you is so special and is the most important baby in the world to you because you are it's your baby and you're responsible to take care of that baby and that child and so it should be the most important to you in that way that your responsibility is there but your baby is not any better than any of the other babies in the world and deserves as much love as all the other babies also deserve love so you can love and appreciate your baby so much and recognize that this baby is so special to you and you are going to make sure you take care of this baby for the rest of your life in whatever way you can while also recognizing all the other babies in the world are beautiful and deserve to get loved fully by their parents and also by the world and society and how we take care of uh, each other and take care of the children and that's good and not in some way thinking that your baby is better than them so the same way we can look at the future generation that you're holding and think of it as something you value and cherish but recognizing its equality with the other babies, we can look to our past and our ancestors the same way. Okay, let me look at what my ancestors have done. Oh, wow, this is great. Now, of course, they've also done bad things too, but usually people tend to not want to focus on that. But nonetheless, we look at our heritage, you can look at your culture and cultural background and see the beauty and the good in it. But just like how you can see your child and value that and recognize all the others are equal, you can recognize that other people have done wonderful things and other cultures are beautiful and contribute something that might not be yours, so to speak, in the way that we think of it, but theirs is also good and worthy of respect and love. And there's no need to elevate and put one above or below the other. This, this is my cultural background heritage. What is yours? Not, this is mine. Look how much better it is than yours. And because of that, how much better I am than you. So I think we don't have to look at it in a, by understanding our culture, we have to put it above. It's about understanding, to know better. And also when we understand, we understand the good, bad, and the ugly too. Just like we would if we look at our child, we understand them and see them for who they are, not some idealized 
version, we should be doing that about our past too, that there's lots of wonderful and beautiful things, but there's also going to be some horrible and horrific things too, that we want to learn from those as well. We, we can learn from both. And, and so what I see people doing with these heritage, and I actually don't really like these like 23andMe and Ancestry.com tests. I think it actually brings up more of these feelings of distinctions and differences rather than anything so meaningful. And I don't really think too much about it. But anyway, people can do that as they wish. But my issue is when we try to think that because of my background, somehow I'm better. And this relates to what I was talking about in the last segment about white supremacy and these mindsets, that somehow because of my heritage, I'm somehow better than you. So that's one part. I'm better than whatever that you is, others, and, and comparing yourself to some group. And then also, interestingly, because of that, I deserve better treatment or to be taken care of. And, and this goes back to the way we even think of things like royalty or nobility, where because of your heritage, you got different treatment. Yes, if you are part of the royalty, the royal family, you get treated a certain way. You get certain advantages, opportunities, wealth, uh, respect, all these things. And so you're born in this way. And so you get something because of it and you continue to get something throughout your life. And that's what people do with these types of things. Even actually, if we look at male and female, in cultures that still have it and even throughout history of course but even still this feeling that well i'm a man so you should do what i want and i should get what i want because of my inherent in my born strength and vitality and goodness i already just deserve things i should get things because of the accident of my birth so i have this superiority and it's interesting you're superior and then because of that you should get more um, things. That's the way we tend to look at it. And, and Iranians are very big on this. And who is your family and what is the background? And because of that, you're worthy of uh, respect. People should deal with you. They should marry into your family. They should treat you in all these types of way because you are just better than. And I think this actually could be related to part of why we see such strong racist tendencies in Iranians because of the culture, I think, permeates the sense that look for who's better or worse than others and also who you can elevate yourself above. Okay, maybe I'm not part of this, but I'm not like those people. And we're always looking for a way to elevate ourselves, to make ourselves feel good about who we are based on these things, these inherent parts that we think are so significant. I don't think those things matter. I'm not saying every single person is born the same. No, but I think the value of every person can be seen as equal and the same. And I actually don't think people are born and groups, the way we define them are so different the way we think they are. Uh, and to me, it's actually interesting when people say, let's say, for example, my, you know, someone says their descendants were royalty. So again, I should be treated better. I don't agree with that. And if anything, I would say, well, if you're descended in some way and you think you're so much superior and stronger, then shouldn't you be doing even better and more in your life, whatever you're doing now? So if you tell me I'm descended of royalty, so that makes me great, well, then what are you doing with it? And that's the big problem I have with these things is that what people are doing is they're saying, based on the accident of my birth or my heritage or this uh, kind of genetic or status that I've inherited, I should get and this is where I think we have 
ideas related to success and a good life backwards. People tend to think a good life is one where you get lots of things. A successful life is one where you get things. You get fame, you get money, you get attention. But really, it's the other way around. The good life and the successful life should be measured by what you give. How much do you help others? How do you, what have you given to society to bring about more fairness, justice, kindness, love, um, whatever it is that you can give and share with the world rather than what you get? We come from this mindset that getting is the goal when really the mindset should be giving. So to me, if someone says, I'm so powerful and strong, it's kind of interesting. Usually if you think of kings, it's like, I'm so powerful and strong, so I'm going to relax and lay back and you guys all come take care of me. But to me, if you're actually powerful and strong, you show that by what you give to others. I'm going to be so powerful and strong that I give to others. And this is why I'm always encouraging people to build themselves up, strengthen themselves so that they can give even more to the world. Whatever your gifts are, keep practicing on those gifts, working on them, improving them, getting whatever kind of coaching or training in it to get even better and stronger to then help others or go educate yourself if that's relevant, get degrees so that people will be able to listen to you in a different way when they know you've studied this and you become an expert and now share that expertise with others to make a bigger impact in the world. So when we look at our heritage, if we want to look at it because it makes us feel like we're better than others, that to me is a huge problem. And really, to me, it's coming from this insecurity of feeling insignificant, of not feeling good enough. I'm not feeling good enough in myself, but if I see I have these ancestors that were powerful or stronger, had this status, maybe that now just means inherently I'm good. So rather than trying to inherent, inherit goodness, or superiority, we should strive to be the best version of ourselves with what we can do in this life. To me, I don't care if your ancestors were this or that. I care about what you do with your life. That matters to me. If your great, 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 great grandfather or grandmother did something great, wonderful for them, what are you going to do with your life? You don't have any added value to me because they did something, or you don't have any added value to this world because they did something. You are responsible for what you do with your life. That's what's going to give your life value or not value, not what they have done. And I know it's an idealistic type of principle that's easy to say and harder to do, but trying to recognize the equality as far as the value, not that everyone is going to be the same, the equality of value of every human being in every human life is the default position I believe we should all start from. Seeing every human being as a full person who deserves love and respect, dignity, and the basic human rights at a minimum is something that we should all strive towards and not try to determine who deserves it or doesn't deserve it. That's already a lost battle when you try to think of who does or doesn't deserve the basic human rights. Everyone does. Let's go to a commercial break and take some calls. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, doctor. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to talk to you too. Thanks for calling. How can I help you? Go ahead. Uh, cool. Um, I've been listening to your talk. Um, you pointed out something about racism 
cultural mm-hmm. background and all that, I think my um, problem or the topic I want to talk to you about is kind of related to it. So uh, I would like to okay. start with a very and quick introduction sure. of myself first. Yeah. And let me just say something, so, um, you know, your question... Your question does not need to be related to that. That's just something I opened the show with. So feel feel free to ask whatever you want to ask about uh, regarding yourself or what's going on. So go ahead. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. Um, so I'm 37 years old. I'm calling from New Zealand. It's uh, very early in the morning here. <laughs> and um, um, so I am doing a PhD in engineering um, toward the end of it. And... Uh, I've not been in New Zealand for a very long time, just for my PhD. Um, so well, I, had a, I had an opportunity to actually uh, work for a company um, for about a year. And uh, when I did the job, I figured out that despite my certificate or despite what I think about myself and even others think about myself, I cannot really perform well in the job. And I could see that I cannot switch between the tasks um, in comparison with other people working there. And I couldn't really fulfill the um, expectations of myself as well as my manager, I guess. And um, that was why I started to actually do some sort of diagnosis of myself. So I started to work with a therapist here. I did a QEG test because I was suspicious that the problem might be related to um, um, lack of attention or something. But I can actually summarize the problem or all the findings uh, that actually I came up with about myself in three bullet points that I can quickly tell you. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to reading, so it's about reading. The other one is about my choice of movies and books. And the last one is my sense of direction. So when it comes to reading, Sometimes I lost my place halfway through a paragraph, or when I read a sentence, um, I cannot really, like, I'm halfway through the sentence, I cannot really make a guess what the sentence is going to tell me, which a proactive reader should be able to do that, or a normal reader. So that's the problem in reading. And then when it comes to my choice of movies, I would only go for action movies or the movies that offer a very quick pace of uh, events happening, so I'm not really patient with family movies or drama movies or any slow-moving type of movies. Um, When it comes to sense of direction, I am really terrible. I I cannot really remember direction. Let's say I've been to a place for specific reasons like 20 times, but I still should follow the GPS. Uh, otherwise, um, I cannot really get there. Um, so these, these are the things that I found, and I can summarize all into two words. Um, um, passivity, I can say. I mean, mental passivity, because physically I'm very active. I play um, group of sports, and I'm always up for any physical activity. And um, kind of impatience, I can say, or restlessness. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about this, too, and see, like... Um, uh, how if, it's, if if there is a way to like overcome this, or how do you like, how how you see the problem? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I mean, you mentioned attention, and a lot of them seem to have that theme. Yeah. 
which would make us think that, you know, obviously ADHD is the first thing that jumps out, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. There does seem to be that feeling. Even when you say you were reading, you say, I can't seem to make a guess uh, and you about what the sentence is going to say. Now, there is something to that in that when we're in general, we think that in life we're taking everything in, but really our brain seems to be making constant predictions of what's going to be on the outside. And so when that matches, yeah. it's okay. And when it doesn't match, it gets to our attention. So there is something about like, let's say when you're reading, you probably are expecting where it's going to go. But it does seem like in the way you're saying it, it's almost like you might be going ahead. So you're reading the word in front of you, but you want to read like five words ahead also. And so you mentioned that word impatient. So that could be related to that. And of course, with, with the movies and um, feeling like, you know, this need of constant stimulation, the way you're describing it, where a quote unquote slower movie won't capture your attention or you get bored. And the sense of direction, people have different baseline levels. Like, I think I'm okay. I'm not that great. I have a cousin, Fashid, who's really good. So if we go somewhere new, I really trust him to know where things are and I kind of follow him and I'm okay. But that could also be related to things like mindfulness, how aware you are. So within your own range of, you know, baseline of being good with a sense of direction and things, uh, how mindful you are, how much you're paying attention to your surroundings will affect how well you take them in and learn them. But if you're more mindless or not so connected and just going through wherever, you won't be learning that new information too. So there does seem to be that theme of inattention. And inattention, we think of again, ADHD first, it could be other things. So you mentioned you went to therapy and I think you said something about tests. So was there anything revealed in those tests? Yeah, I would like to. So um, they, so there was a QEG test. And um, if I tell you like one thing about the test, which was kind of predominant, uh, is um, there was a widespread alpha rhythm in the test. So this is mm -hmm. actually singled out as a an abnormality or something, and there was um, a small run of MU rhythm, and um, th these are the two things that uh, I was told by um, uh, the, um, the the therapist who actually did the test. Okay, and then they didn't make any recommendations yeah. for treatment or medication. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually doing um, um, neurofeedback. Um, but I'm not really, I, I don't really know, like, what is, um, I should actually talk to my therapist, like, what is it about, I mean, what what are the adjustments or treatments she's actually doing. But uh, I've been doing this um, uh, neurofeedback um, twice a week for about um, two months now. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't really see a major difference, to be honest. Um, um, yeah, the, the, these are the two things that um, I can point out. So okay. uh, the, the other thing I wanted to mention, which is kind of related to culture and race and stuff, is that I had a really difficult situation uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I can say between the age of five to eight. So one year before I go to school, there was one of our relatives that taught me how to read and write. And I could actually read and write one year before going to school, but his method of teaching was a bit um, uh, too much for me to handle. So it was mostly based on punishment and kind of shaming 
it was not like more of a physical punishment, but it, it, it involved lots of um, shaming and he didn't care like he is treating me and other cousins like that in front of others, but it was a big deal for me. And I was very sensitive to that. And he was with us all the way um, through first year and second year of primary school. And I was very, very nervous any time I could actually see him around. So I don't know mm. what is the contribution of that one and what contribution or, or the, the, um, the, the result of this QEG test is the result of that one. So I'm a bit confused in that. Well, yeah, you know, the, I mean, the that type of treatment that you're talking about, unfortunately, people think often that fear and punishment is the way to teach someone something, and it, it definitely is not, it's not, and it's not needed. Um, but it could have had a big impact because, you know, it's hard to say what's exactly going on. There definitely is this issue and theme of inattention. You said kind of mental passivity or being impatient, which seems to be there, which could be related to ADHD and something uh, neurologically going on. Um, but what you even just described, a lot of what you're also saying is having a hard time being in the moment and so almost looking for an escape as well. And so there could be something that's that could be there about not wanting to stay with your feelings or stay with what's happening. And so you're trying to get away from that with this constant distraction. And of course, oftentimes more than one thing is going on. So that's an, a, another thing I'd want you to, to look at or even if you think about yourself, do you feel like that describes you having a hard time to sit with your feelings or to allow yourself to experience what you're feeling emotionally? Um, yeah, I can actually say that. Like, um, uh, in, in fact, I'm much better than before, but I remember that um, being alone and just mm -hmm. thinking about myself without doing anything, without, like, um, doing anything with my mobile phone or being on the net, just being myself and my feelings, used to be very, very hard for me. It's not as hard as before, but it's still not a pleasant feeling if I mm -hmm. actually get to stay and meditate. Mm, yeah, I can I can um, relate to what you're saying about that. Yeah, that, that was an interesting moment. I um, was writing the word down meditation to make sure I mentioned that to you, as you said, <laughs> meditating. And so I, yeah. I wanted to make that recommendation. And I, I would imagine it would be challenging for you based on what you've described all the more reason why it could be helpful for you uh, so yeah. there could be something there of trying to get away from the feelings and so when you said when I sit with my feelings it doesn't feel good are you trying to get away what type of feelings tend to come up um, uh, because of the problem I hardly put myself in that situation Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So it's not easy to answer, but I can say, um, so I, I can actually um, answer the question in a way. So when I sit in my room in front of my um, computer and I'm, I want to actually do a bit of reading or uh, whatever related to my studies, specifically when it comes to uh, reading, understanding, and paraphrasing, which is very important in actually academic so um, I, I feel restless. I feel um, difficult to stay and stay focused and continue. So 
I would be dragged by different thoughts and go here and there and think about the past and um, or mainly I actually tend to make up a story in my mind and put myself in that uh, created situation and mm-hmm. try to act in that situation or it might be a situation that I've been in before and I just recall and try to be in that situation and act and talk mm-hmm. more perfectly. So these are the stories I make yeah. and like a dreaming, daydreaming, something like that. So that's what happens if I uh, put myself in a room alone without doing anything. Yeah, yeah. or even in this case you're doing something but it seems like that thing you're doing is bringing up some anxiety and so you're saying studying for mm-hmm. example for your PhD and so often when we feel anxiety what that pushes us or tries to get us to do is to avoid the thing that makes us anxious. So if you're sitting down trying to study for your PhD or something that might be meaningful and it brings up this anxiety, you're going to want to distract yourself. Like you said, you might feel restless. And then daydreaming is a very interesting uh, type of experience because some daydreaming is good and natural and we need it, but it can also be used kind of like a drug. So it seems like in those moments you use it as an escape to get away from this feeling that's not good and maybe it brings up these feelings of what if I don't understand this, what if I have a hard time with this, and, and whatever else going forward maybe about your program and what's going to happen. And, and so it's safer and feels nice to escape into this either something positive that happened or some imagined situation. And, and the interesting thing about daydreaming is people sometimes think, well, it's a fantasy and it's so out there. Yes, but it's also something you have in your complete control. So even if you're flying and doing something really wild and crazy, you get to control everything that happens. So it's very safe. Um, so it's interesting that you go there. So there could be a combination of things going on. There could be some ADHD and things mentally that you're dealing with. But there also could be something about this uh difficulty or inability to sit with yourself and be at peace that inner peace feeling and which is why i think meditation would be a good idea for you to do as much as it is challenging and actually again even especially because it is challenging so we're at a commercial break but i want to continue our conversation so just hold online we'll talk after the break okay sure yeah all sure. right you're listening to in session with dr fatty jalakwi we'll be right back Welcome back. Uh, before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go back to him now. Caller, are you still there? Hi. Uh, yes. Um, yes. Thanks for having me back again. Um, of course. Um, yes. So you actually um, pointed out that meditation can help me because, mm-hmm. if I understood you well, because yes. it actually helps me to um, be okay with my um, feelings and with, with my um, emotions and living in the moment. Am I right? Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. And actually related to that, absolutely, I think meditation is one of those things that almost everyone would benefit from doing and doing more of. And what you said about feelings, I, I wanted to get your own sense of what you think about that. Do you think and do you feel that the feelings like sadness, anger, those painful or more negative experience feelings, do you feel like those are hard for you to experience and hold on to and you try to get rid of them do you notice that pattern in yourself mm, if i if i talk about 
so are you referring to the time that I'm alone with myself, or you're asking in general? In, well, yeah, just in general. I mean, of course, alone as well, but just in general, your experience yeah. emotionally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in general, um, I don't feel uh, anger most of the time. I'm actually uh, kind of relaxed. I mean, I look uh, uh, relaxed. The only uh, outstanding thing about myself is the feeling of being worried about different things. I understand part of it because as, a, as, a, as an Iranian, like going to another country and trying to settle down, and uh, like it, it's always um, a problem of getting approval from this center and that organization and things to be able to get the residency, get the job, uh, finish your study. So uh, I understand some of it, but um, he, if I talk about the other feelings, I don't feel like um, anger. I don't feel, um, uh, what was the other thing you, you mentioned? Well, and um, I don't just mean feeling them, uh, and you're right, what you're dealing with, there's a stress that comes with yeah. being uh, you know, in yeah. a different country and all the things you have to go through. I meant when you, it, it sounds kind of strange, but what do you think or feel about the feelings? For example, some people, if they're feeling sad, they get this almost stressed feeling like they have to get rid of it immediately or mm -hmm. avoid it or change it or something like that. That's yeah. that's what I meant as far as staying with the feelings if when they come. It doesn't mean you're necessarily an angry person or a sad mm -hmm. person, but no, I wanted to okay. get a sense of your relationship with those emotions. Yeah. There is one thing I would like to um, point out here about the feelings. Um, so what can actually uh, make me Bad, and it stays with me for quite a long time is if I'm actually criticized hmm. by um, others and it would be really bad if that criticism has happened in front of others um, that is what I um, that that's actually what makes me really sad and it stays in my mind and time to time I actually bring it back to my mind and review it and probably make one of those stories and they dreams about it and try to um, acted again when I'm alone. So that is uh, one of the things that makes me sad. Criticism. Mm -hmm. So that's like my um, my um, very raw nerve. If mm -hmm. someone actually touches it it, 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 it can actually put me in a sadness for, for a while. Yeah. And, and you said it's a raw nerve, which might make it more clear because, you know, no one really likes to get criticized, but you seem to recognize that the way it affects you might even be deeper than it might affect most people. And so that could be connected or related to uh, perfectionistic tendencies. Do you feel like you have that, a perfectionism? Um, yes. Another thing that I actually... Uh notice about myself is that because of my birth order because I'm like the oldest son and then I have two other siblings uh, like five years and ten years away from me the younger so I I think um, that has something to do with it uh, that's why I cannot like take criticism easily and perfectionism I um, I can feel that because when I'm, for example, when I'm preparing something, let's say I'm preparing a presentation, um, sometimes I find myself 
caring about some details too much while I know mm-hmm. I'm running out of time and I have to finish it. So instead yeah. of finishing the first clumsy draft and then trying to uh, polish it up, sometimes I find myself, oh, I'm just halfway through and then I'm taking care of some details and I might run out of time. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can see that perfection in them in some of my actions like that, but yeah. not all the time and not everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that may, it, it kind of just, you know, the way you talked about criticism and, and even the anxiety you experience reading. Now, it's very possible you have ADHD, which uh, the neurofeedback might help, but also medication might help. And so I think it would be a good idea for you to get a test for that or get evaluated for that, especially since you're, the way you're describing it, this seems to be a fairly big issue for you as far as your inability to pay attention or to, to have concentration. Um, but there also seems to be an anxiety, even when you said studying, because you mentioned when I'm trying to study for my PhD program, where that anxiety can come up sometimes when people are reading, let's say something new, and because it's important, because they feel they have to understand it and understand it like perfectly or understand it well, there's this stress of even starting to read it because what it's this feeling of what if I don't understand it or what if I don't get some of it or what if I don't know all of it? And, and that could lead to this anxiety which will make you want to avoid reading it, which unfortunately then just adds more stress because now you might have less time to do that thing. So I, I do feel like there's an anxiety there too. And now here's where these things get complicated because if you have ADHD and you have inattention and also the hyperactivity part, it could give a feeling of agitation and restlessness that you described as well, which might also look this way. And so that's why I think it'll be important to get a test and get evaluated for ADHD to see if that is there. But I do get the feeling, like I said in the last segment, I think about this uh, lack of an inner peace that just to sit by yourself is challenging. And so, again, if you're ADHD, that could be there. There's this restlessness. You feel like a motor is kind of driving you. But I want to see if there's something also emotionally going on that makes you feel anxious about just sitting with the feelings that might come up of sadness or discomfort or unhappiness or whatever it might be. And that's also pushing you to feel like you have to constantly be on the go. Now, let me ask you this. How are you in relationships, both friendships and romantic relationships? Um, friendships, um, so I have a couple of groups of friends. So I'm mm-hmm. very much into playing football. So I have some friends that I found them playing football here. And I have some um, other friends living in other countries, but I've been their flatmates. So I know them like in the past. So they're my Iranian friends. Uh, because there is not a big Iranian community here in New Zealand. Um, mm-hmm. Another, I have a very close friend, um, and he's one of those well, friends. He's not Iranian. Um, um, that's about my friends. I, I have a good, actually, relationship with my PhD fellows at the university. Um, but when it comes to romantic relationship, I've never been into any type of serious relationship. I've been to a couple of casual relationships time to time. Mm-hmm. And that's all. Yeah, I've never been into any like, serious relationship. Yeah, and so why do you think that is? Um, well, you know, part of it is because because of the the, the image I have about like marriage, because romantic relationships, 
will eventually, either it actually uh, stops at some point or it will actually lead to a marriage or a partnership. And the image I have about marriage is the image that I have about my parents and like other uncles and aunties I have actually seen around me grown up. And that is not a really pleasant thing that I would like to repeat. So um, that's probably one reason I can think of. I mm-hmm. personally don't really think, I don't, I don't know if this is a fair judgment or not, but I don't really think a partnership or a kind of marriage can really bring more um, good feelings or happiness to me, mm-hmm. or maybe I have not seen such a thing. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think obviously, I think it's possible. Definitely, I think, and we should strive for that. You, if you are in the wrong kind of relationship, it will make you more unhappy, not happier, feel better, and more fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But the, the what you're saying is that the expectation is not even just expectation. It's almost like you're not sure it's even possible to be happy in a relationship or to feel happier in a relationship. Mm-hmm. So you feel that it's safer or a better idea to be alone, as far as the romantic sense goes. Uh, because you mentioned in, in kind of in passing about your parents and other family members, what you saw of marriage was something very negative. I'm also wondering about what your relationships like were like with your parents themselves. But yeah, there's not a sense that there doesn't seem to be much of a, well, there might be a desire, but there's more of an anxiety or feeling that it's not going to be worth it or good. Do you, do you have a desire? Do you find yeah. yourself wanting to be with someone? Um... Yeah, I yes, I can say, and that's the motivation behind the casual relationships I've had. Um, yeah, and, and one thing that you pointed out about parents, so we are coming from a subculture in Iran that we're not into religion at all, like even mm-hmm. my grandparents have never actually practiced in religion. So this is not something that most of the Iranians know about, even when I talk about it to another person from another city in Iran, they actually get very confused. They, I understand that young people are kind of escaping from religion, but when you talk about your grandparents or like that, it's very um, strange to them. And when I was a kid, I didn't know it. I didn't actually notice, but growing up and comparing myself to others, I noticed, oh, our subculture is different. So that's to give you a bit of background mm-hmm. of like uh, myself and then, I have a very, very good uh, connection with my siblings. We are really, really good friends. And also with my parents, I talk to them frequently. Um, I know that they're not like the best friends to me to understand because there is a big gap between me and them in terms of education. And then there is uh, another gap between them and my grandparents because we had a very quick uh, uh, improvement within two or three generations, uh, which is not the thing that I see in like other people. That quick change and quick improvement in terms of education and, and, and job and things like that might actually have brought some other problems because sometimes I think the reason I am not successful in the job or I, I think I cannot fulfill the expectations that I have is that deep down I don't really believe that I belong to this crowd that I'm with because mm. they're all coming from uh, from from um, families with education, like parents are teachers, parents have been like professionals and things, and my parents were not, and my grandparents were not. 
sometimes may, maybe that that is playing a role unconsciously. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. So that's another thing I just wanted. That's to interesting. Uh, well, yeah, you know, that. yeah. I know you kind of, in a way, said some of your call might be related to what I had talked about, but there does seem to be something there of because of your kind of status or heritage, you, you're saying you don't belong or you might feel like you don't belong. And and it could be one of those self-fulfilling prophecies where you don't think you're, you belong or you're good enough in some way, and then it affects your performance, and then it ends up becoming true that you're not really doing so good or not doing as well as you can, confirming that feeling that you're not good enough or don't belong. Even though it seems like you do, you can acknowledge it yourself that you are have the capabilities and skills to do it, um, but not that uh, you, for some reason you feel like deep down maybe you don't belong. And, and I think it's interesting, you know, the romantic relationships, the feelings you have about closeness, about what marriage is like. It seems like you experience what many people do. You're saying there's that desire, so you have these short-term relationships, but then that uh, fear of commitment and intimacy starts to kick in, and so you push the person away, or you somehow the, you end the relationship, whether um, you push them away or end it, or whatever it might be. And you end up being alone, which, and romantically, I'm not saying overall, uh, which seems to be your comfort zone. But we don't know. Comfort zone is an interesting thing because it sounds like it feels good. But in our comfort zone, we tend to feel unfulfilled and unsatisfied and even unhappy because we're not getting what we actually want or need, but we're, ch- we're choosing a safer route. So there could be something there. And so what I want you to do is during this commercial break, I want to keep talking to you about uh, some of these issues because we've opened up a lot of different things to really think about do you want yep. to be when you think about this question of do you want to be with someone romantically have a partner what kind of thoughts and feelings come up so think about that and we'll start there after the break okay sure yes all right you're listening to in session with dr fatty jalakwi we'll be right back Welcome back. Before the break, I was with the caller. Caller, are you still there? Yes, yes. Okay, so before the break, I asked you to think about a question about getting close marriage and want to see what kind of thoughts or feelings come up for you uh, with that. Yeah, okay. Um, that's an interesting thing, actually. Um, if, I, um, uh, if, I, if I was asked the same question like, Ten years ago, it was a definite no, but now I have actually changed because I think of it more realistically. I know this is a challenge, um, and um, uh, how can I say? This is a challenge, and I would like to actually challenge myself in that sense. As uh, and, and also, I, I think uh, there is a probability to find someone who understand all the realities and be kind on the same page with me so we don't necessarily need to be caught up in all those cultural uh, negative cultural things that like my parents and that generation actually went through so I'm not that negative about it compared to like 10 years ago Um, but if you ask me what kind of feelings will come up if I think about it, um, uh, I, I, I'm not a person who's interested in arguments. I, uh, for me, I think that like the first argument is the last argument. Mm-hmm. And 
and, and I look at argument as a fight. Uh, it's different from talking because when we talk, uh, we are not criticizing each other. There is a problem on the table, and we are just cooperating to solve the problem. But when it comes to argument, there is a kind of tendency to say something or do something to bother the other side, kind of on purpose. So when that happens, the whole bond and the whole uh, friendship actually collapses, at least from my side. So that is that is the risk I see over there. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. There's so much in what you said. I, you know, it's good that you seem more open to it now, like you said, compared to 10 years ago. Um, but that the way yeah. you talked about conflict, which most people, obviously most people don't like conflict, as in they want to be in conflict, but we need to be able to tolerate conflict, and people have a different range on that. And for many people, they can feel like you do, that conflict, you said the first conflict is the last conflict. So if there's a conflict, that means the relationship is over. It's not something that can be worked on and worked through and might even strengthen the relationship. It's actually the end of the relationship. And of course, you can't get close and have any kind of a long-term relationship without experiencing some conflict unless you are not getting close or one or both people are hiding things from the other person. And so um, you're in a way it makes sense because if that's how you think of a relationship or you think a relationship should feel or go, you can't really be in one. But we have to be willing to accept those parts of the relationship, the conflict and things come up as something that is not only natural but needed in a relationship. And also the other point you made of um, in a fight people will try to hurt each other. Now there is some truth to that when we're in arguments and you get angry it brings up this feeling of want to, wanting to hurt the person who is making you angry in that moment but of course that doesn't mean you necessarily have to act on it and even when those things might come up the degree of what we're talking about can be different. Yes there's something maybe you say something in a harsher way or your tone or sometimes people disrespect their partner very strongly in ways that are really horrible. And so I don't know what you meant by that, if you just meant that they might say something mean or their tone might be bad, or if you really meant something very disrespectful. Because, um, yeah, that disrespect is, oh, it's like a poison to the relationship. It doesn't, it could kill the relationship if there is some of it even, or even, of course, too much of it. So when you were thinking of people in a relationship, that in a fight, they hurt each other, what did you mean? Um, I think, uh, okay, I, when I said, like, they say things or they do things on purpose to help the other side is um, um, mostly verbal, because I talked about argument. So mm -hmm. this is about disrespecting or trying to remind the other person of their weaknesses and problems, because... Mm -hmm. In Iranian culture, is always um, expected that the man should provide, the man should do, like, the outside work. The man is like the breadwinner and things like that. And um, ladies are always in the position. I, I don't accept it, and I, I'm not saying, like, ladies actually are, but I'm saying in that culture, this is, like, the general perspective. Because um, I really have respect for both men and women. So... Um, um, and, and the perception is that ladies are in a position of nagging and asking 
And when those requirements are not fulfilled, then they actually um, try to put in an argument and nagging. I'm, I'm emphasizing on the word nagging because I think that is what I cannot tolerate. And mm-hmm. one thing that I, because uh, I'm a fan of um, the program of Dr. Fahan Kolakwi, and one of the things that he says is that if you tell something to your friend or your child or someone once and twice and then they are not, that seems that they're not listening or they're not doing anything, you should think that there is a problem over there. You should not just try to keep saying it and keep saying it. But but that's one of the things that I've seen grown up, and I don't really like it. So that's another thing that I don't like about mm-hmm. a relationship. And probably it's all about the Iranian version of the relationship and the old school version of it that I have in mind, and I should change that perception, I, I, I think. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, like you said, it's this is not necessarily the case, but those beliefs are still there or maybe expectations because of what you observed that um, there will be these fights and people will say things to hurt each other and bring up things and that nagging is what you're going to get from your partner when you disappoint them or if you disappoint them. But then also that you have this feeling of, well, I don't actually think these things, but then maybe I do. And we were talking about avoiding conflict, but it seems like there's an internal conflict you're experiencing too in trying to understand yourself, what you expect, and also what's right in a relationship because we get affected by what we see in the culture we are born into and are surrounded by. It can affect ways that we think in a feeling way. So I even see this with a lot of the younger generation Iranians here in the United States. The males, for example, will tell you, you know, I really, I want a strong woman and I'm not like the older generation. Mm-hmm. It's not traditional. I want someone strong. Yeah. And then they get into a relationship and they can have a reaction when they're with someone who it's more of an equal partnership. And it could be because mm-hmm. they had these expectations from childhood or these emotional feelings about a relationship. So their emotional and logical or rational minds are kind of disconnected. There isn't a harmony. So rationally and logically, they mm-hmm. want something equal but emotionally they might actually want something more unequal and traditional. And so it seems like you might have some internal conflicts. And interestingly enough, you mentioned avoiding conflict with other people, but you might be partially avoiding some of this conflict within yourself of trying to reconcile what does this mean for you? What do you want? What would you like in a relationship? Because you can create the kind of relationship and choose a partner that you like. It doesn't have to be something, you know, like you you saw in the past. But, you know, this embracing of conflict, both internal, of course, but also external, it's something so significant because we can't have closeness without conflict. It's just not possible to have a closeness. And, And even what you talk about in work, I think some of your fear of conflict might make you a little bit anxious in doing your work that you're afraid to get it wrong. What if they don't like it? What if they're going to criticize me? And so it can make you even more on edge, which, as I mentioned before, makes it more likely that you don't perform at the highest level and then might lead to those conflicts Mm -hmm. coming up. But there's even this sense of anxiety, I think, there that I don't want to do something that someone doesn't like or for them to nag me or to make a mistake. And so it leads to this sense of anxiety when you're doing your work as well. And so this uh, feeling, and that's why I was asking about the feelings, because conflict brings up feelings. One, it brings up feelings within ourselves, like this doesn't feel good, this feels bad. 
but also that sense that this is the end of the relationship. So it brings up this feeling of like a crisis, like this is something really bad. Uh, this is the end of the relationship. This person doesn't love me. This person is going to leave me. And those are very scary thoughts and feelings to have to deal with. And so it seems like you've felt, now you're saying it's less, but this feeling of it's just better to avoid the whole thing. There's too much stress. Uh, there's almost this guarantee in your mind that it's going to end poorly or end in something bad. Either you break up or you get married, which I don't know which one feels worse to you right now because of what you described. And, and so either way, it's kind of a lose-lose kind of a thing. So I'd rather yeah. be alone. Even if I'm missing something, I'd rather be kind of sad and know what's going on than face that unpredictable of putting myself out there. Yeah, I can I can actually um, relate to what you just mentioned. And uh, this is interesting that when I look at the casual relationships I've had, I probably unconsciously or consciously, I pick someone who um, I'm sure that, first of all, is not going to last. Secondly, mm -hmm. I'm not really, really, I wouldn't be really, really upset if I lose. So that, that I can see, I can see that very evidently in my past casual relationships. Yeah. So I've never been sad of ending them because I've never been too excited of starting them, actually. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, when you when you start a relationship in that way, and I'm glad you're aware of that pattern, like you're saying, you kind yeah. of know it's going to end. So that makes you feel safer and you don't care that much. So if you lose them or something happens, it doesn't affect you that much either. So it's totally taking the safe route. You know, I can't lose much. I can't get hurt much. I don't care if it doesn't work out. But when you take that route, you also can't get much from the relationship either. It can't be as fulfilling or meaningful as well. You know, you, you're left unsatisfied. It's kind of like if you were applying for a job and rather than going for a job you really like and that was challenging, you picked a very, very easy job because you know they would hire you and they'll never fire you. And so, yeah, you can get that job and it has that stability and security and you don't have to worry in that way, but you're also going to be unfulfilled in the work you're doing, unsatisfied in the pay you're getting and unhappy overall. And you're just going to feel like, eh, well, at least it's yeah. safe. And so you're, it seems like you're choosing that in your relationships to make sure you protect yourself. But when you protect yourself, you also deprive yourself as well. Yeah. Actually, um, uh, what I tried to do after the turning point for me was like that about, about a year working for that company, uh, thanks to my supervisor and the manager they were friends actually and I met them in an event and, and they gave me the opportunity. So that actually made me uh, notice because when, when, when I was on the pressure of the work, I could see like what are the, what are the problems. Because when you are not on the pressure, you, you, you don't really know it's like a, a vehicle when you actually try to drive it very fast, then you will notice all oh, this vehicle has this and that problem. So I appreciate that part. And, I try to like know what are the problems, but at least I try to uh, uh, dig in more into that and do the tests and work with this psychotherapist. And when it comes to the job and uh, um, education, I'm trying to take, um, I'm trying to challenge myself as mm -hmm. well. And, and beside that, I'm trying to um, rectify the problems working with the psychologist. So I'm actually challenging myself in that sense. But yeah. when it comes to relationships, I think I should give it a pause for now. Maybe 
in the near future I can do something about that. Well, well, maybe I don't want to say you shouldn't take that pause. And yeah, you're definitely. I don't want mean to imply you're not. You're only staying in your comfort zone. Clearly, you moved to another country to do a PhD program. Both moving to another country and doing a PhD program are challenging and definitely out of a comfort zone. So clearly, you're doing that and not only pursuing comfort, um, but it does seem like in relationships. And also, what's interesting is when you look at things like doing a PhD program, of course, you're not in complete control, but you can feel like you have a lot more control. For a lot of people in a relationship, they feel like, of course, at most, they have really like 50% control because there's another person involved, and that can feel a lot scarier. Plus, it brings up feelings of trust and what we expect from people if we look at people in our lives and how they treated us. What I would actually recommend, since you mentioned therapy, is for you to stay with a therapist for a long time to actually build a relationship with them. Uh, the, the, of course, the professional relationship, the therapeutic relationship, because there seems to be something there about your feeling of relationships. And even I don't like to interfere, of course, with people's treatment, but something for you to keep in mind is that if you get hurt or upset by something your therapist does, even in a mild way, I hope you'll bring it up because, first of all, I think it's always good for people to do that, but especially in your case, since you have such a relationship with conflict that is so fearful and against it and trying to avoid it, it could be good that you face conflict with your therapist, and I hope that he or she can will handle it, and I'm sure they will, and that it actually will help you grow and see, oh, it's actually not this scary, bad thing. The person doesn't have to react in a negative way, it, and it doesn't have to be the end of the relationship. Actually, it could make the relationship better, because that would that's what good conflict um, expression and resolution does, is it leads to strengthening of the relationship. So I hope you will continue with a therapist for a, a while and build that relationship because that itself will be good to to see that relationships can be meaningful and helpful and then also in the course of your relationship i'm sure issues will come up and i hope you will face them with your therapist and then i'm hoping that'll give you a little bit of a, you know the experience of having it and seeing that maybe conflict is not as scary as you think it is or you build it up to be and that could hopefully shift things because it does seem like you're choosing the safer route of being by yourself not that everyone has to get married so i'm not definitely not making that point but it seems like what's keeping you is not that you necessarily don't want it but that fear and anxiety that comes with it that keeps you from going towards it so i would continue with the therapy i recommend meditation for you as well um, and, you know, I'll wrap up with you now, but, you know, wish you the best in the PhD program and everything you're doing, and I, I appreciate you calling. Thank you very much. Uh, it was uh, such a wonderful um, talk with you, and I'm really happy that I could actually participate in, the, uh, in your um, show and talk to you. Thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate you calling. The pleasure is mine. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Uh, Thank you. Okay, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So the previous caller, a lot of different issues and topics came up, but the one we ended on or one of the big themes that came up at the end was conflict. Such a uh, interesting topic and just even that word conflict, it brings up a lot of feelings for us. As I was talking about last week, everything, every word, 
every object, every even name, whatever it might be, it brings up feelings for us. Some of them might be mild, but some stronger. And conflict is one of those emotionally loaded words for most people. It doesn't feel very good when we think about conflict. And so uh, there's reasons for that. Of course, conflict in the moment usually doesn't feel good. It's not going to or it almost shouldn't feel good to us when we're in it. So there's that part. But similar to what the caller was saying for many people, conflict also comes with really bad things. Of course, in conflict, a lot of times bad things can happen. People can get aggressive, get violent and abusive physically, emotionally, in different ways. That can be very scary. And so many people in their lives have experienced these things. What I've seen in most families, and especially in Iranian families, is our experience of things like conflict and anger, which are connected, is a very much an all or nothing type of things, that type of thing. So in general, we suppress, we push it down. You don't show, don't show, don't show, because everything's good, everything's fine, especially around other people, but even within ourselves and within our own homes, oftentimes we hold things in and then we blow up. And now we explode. And now it's ugly because we've held it in. We're so upset that the same thing has been happening or whatever the issue might be. And it comes out in this really ugly way that is not good and also not productive. Uh, and so it just ends up really bad. And we don't actually get to a better place or even face the issue that's come up. So unfortunately, we see this all or nothing approach to anger and conflict, which isn't a good experience, but also teaches our kids that conflict is this really bad thing. You should avoid it. Because what do you experience? You avoid it, avoid it, which sends the message that it's not something to do. And then when it happens, it's really bad. So it reinforces, ugh, this thing is so not good, so ugly, so negative. We should go back to avoiding it again. And that's really what people do. Hold it in, explode. Gosh, that was ugly. Let me hold it in again until they can't anymore. Explode. See, that thing is so bad. And so we send this message that it's not good. So the experiences of conflict are bad and conflict can lead to bad things. Of course, um, I'm not saying conflict is all good. Of course, it depends on how you deal with it, but then conflicts can lead to the end of a relationship. It could end to things ending. Now, it doesn't mean as the caller said and so many people experience, uh, the first fight is the last fight and that's it. But of course, conflict can be the sign that a relationship is not working. Even a healthy relationship has conflict, but sometimes too much conflict, or if some source of conflict is unresolvable and too big, it can mean the end of a relationship. So we can understand that our feelings towards conflict will have some anxiety and some negativity to it at a minimum, even in the best of cases, because it does bring up some feelings and some uncertainty. There is some risk involved in how your partner in the conflict is going to act and also what the result of it will be. There isn't a guarantee. But the thing is, we can't have a close relationship without conflict. And so it is that risk that we must be willing to take in order to have a relationship, to have a close relationship, an emotionally intimate relationship. Without conflict, you can't have closeness. Or I put a post up a few months ago, I think it was, but avoiding conflict is avoiding closeness. If you are not having conflict with your partner, you are avoiding getting close to each other. 
because to avoid conflict over a long period of time with someone, either you have to be not getting very close to each other in an intimate way emotionally, or one or both of you are holding things from each other, meaning you're upset or you're hurt, but you're not telling them all to avoid the conflict. So you're trying to get away from that. And so this means you can't get that close if you are not embracing or at least open to conflict. And when we bring something up, it's not that we're saying, I want to hurt the other person's feelings, as was brought up in the call, two signs in conflict that happens. We're not trying to hurt the other person. And what I tell people that sometimes will say, well, you know, I just love my partner so much. I don't want to hurt his feelings or I don't want to hurt her feelings. So I hold things in. I don't tell them uh, something that bothered me because I love them. And I can understand that mindset and where that person is coming from. But what I try to get them to see is that when you bring up conflict for the right reason, which is I'm not bringing this up in order to hurt you or my intention isn't to hurt you, but because I know that to be genuine with you, I have to share the things that I'm feeling. And if I don't bring this up, this could hurt our relationship in the long term, because if we avoid the things that are bothering us, they just fester and become worse over time. And that could actually lead to us being less close and our relationship even uh, dissolving at some point. So I'm bringing this up not to hurt you, but because I love you so much and I love our relationship so much that I am sharing this with you now. I'm bringing this up, this feeling I have for us now to deal with together because I love you and I love us, not to hurt you. And even now when I bring it up, I'm not saying you are bad. I'm sharing this feeling and now we together are going to work on this issue. It's not me against you. It's we together. And so usually when we think of conflict, unfortunately, it brings up these dynamics that we're used to, that it has to be ugly, that it's me against you, that one of us wins, one of us loses, one of us is right, one of us is wrong, even one of us is smart, one is dumb, one is moral, one is immoral, and all sorts of other types of us, me versus you type of dynamics, winner takes all, rather than we're going to work on this to resolve it, to get to a better place. And so, as I mentioned, there is no guarantee that a conflict ends well or will end with you being in a better place. But most of the time in a relationship where both people are respectful with each other and are approaching the conflict with the right intentions and the right expectations, the conflict will lead to you being in a better place. It doesn't mean it feels good during, and it doesn't mean at that end of that first conversation everything gets resolved. But facing that conflict when it's done right leads to repairing issues, leads to understanding each other better, and leads to an overall strengthening and a closer connection between the partners. Because let's say your partner does something you don't like. They showed up late and that made you feel bad. Now you can hold that in and you might think that's better for my partner, better for our relationship, won't hurt their feelings, we avoid a fight. But if you do bring it up, a few things happen. Again, bringing it up respectfully is very important and bringing it up in a way that's not blaming them for being a bad person. You're complaining about something that happened, not criticizing them for who they are. But you bring that up, first of all, you're sharing a feeling with your partner, which is always gonna be important. 
first for them to understand you in that moment, but also can help them understand you better. And sometimes that actually adds to it. You know what? My whole life, um, my parents were always late and picking me up and it really made me feel unloved and hurt. And so I realized that when people are late, it can bring up feelings for me. So yesterday when you were late to our dinner meeting or whatever it was, our dinner, it, it hurt my feelings a lot. I realized I had a lot of feelings. And so now let's talk about it. So you're not blaming the other person. You're disrespectful this, you're doing that, you're the worst husband or wife or whatever, but you're sharing a feeling about an experience that happened with your partner, recognizing that some of it involves you and your stuff and who you are. Um, some of it involves what they did, but now let's talk about it together. So now your partner gets to know you better, both about what's happening now, about what's happening in your past, and can also do something about it. When we really love our partner and have the best intentions, we are not sacrificing our whole life for them. But of course, we do want to be aware of what we do and don't do that hurts them and to try to love them in the best way we can to make them feel good. So you could recognize this is important for them. Although I don't think about time that way or it's not such a big deal for me, I'm kind of laid back. Because I know it's important for my partner, and especially now I get the historical context as far as my partner's personal history, that can affect the way I'm going to approach this issue and try to be more mindful about it. And so there could be a back and forth communication. Again, I know, and I'm saying it in this way, it's very idealistic and sounds so pleasant and nice. Conflict is going to get messy. It's going to feel bad sometimes. It's going to leave you not feeling good almost always in the moment of the conflict, you'd rather not be doing it. You'd rather be watching TV like you were before the argument or the discussion started. That makes sense. But you realize that this is something necessary to make things better. It's like cleaning things up. Like you go for a teeth cleaning when you're sitting there. And I know right now these things are even more complicated, but even in general, you're sitting there and the person is you know, poking away and cleaning your mouth, maybe there's a little bit of blood, there's discomfort, your jaw starts to hurt. None of that stuff feels good. You would rather not be doing it than doing it as far as the experience of it. But you know that that's necessary for your dental health to keep your mouth, your teeth, your gums healthy, to check if there's any problems and to make sure you're okay. So similarly, when we have these conversations where we bring up things and talk about them, you're cleaning stuff up so that it doesn't build up. Just like if the the hygienist doesn't clean certain things that are in your mouth, that could turn into an infection and cavity and decay and root canals and all these other things you'll have to do to deal with it. Similarly, in your relationship, if you don't face things, they don't go away. The problems just get worse and could get to a part where there's no longer room for repair. Now there's just removal. Just like you might have to remove the tooth, you might have to remove the relationship if you leave issues unaddressed. So we embrace and face conflict, not because it feels good and because it's pleasant, but we know that in order to have a healthy and strong relationship, it's necessary. We're willing to take that risk into that discomfort and to that unknown result because we have faith that this is what's going to lead to a better relationship. And if you have a partner who you feel respects you and you respect them and you've worked through conflict before, you can have that faith and expectation that things will go well. This might not feel good in the moment, but the result will be good. So avoiding conflict is avoiding closeness, something that we have to make sure we don't do.
All right, that leads us to the end of today's show. Thank you to Ghazala in the studio, as always, who's making this work, and to the caller who called in today. Appreciate it. Hope you guys all are having a wonderful day. Look forward to seeing you Monday night. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lockley. Have a great day.